our American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We liked lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company, and it was, you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. What child is the Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival they called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand, the beer has been made, it's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, furs, and holly into their homes. Over the centuries, the concept grew, 
and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today, picking out a tree is a family tradition. And in any given year, American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman, and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Roxas State Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the Star of Bethlehem and the Wise Men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. This is Our American Stories. More on how Christmas came to be as an American celebration and our national holiday after these messages.
is our American Stories. And we're answering the question, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Let's pick up where we left off. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a, a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered, except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner. And he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin. They're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs and people sing them together. And very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically-oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. 
How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christ Kindle. That's right, Christ Kindle. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christ Kindle got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Chris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner. 
when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's, both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they own. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday. And they would mold our image of jolly old St. Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore, a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood, and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. And when we come back, more on the story of Christmas in America and how it came to be. This is Our American Stories. For all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. our American stories and by the way that great keyboard playing there's a whole story to that keyboard playing in Charlie Brown's Christmas and our annual Charlie Brown Christmas story will play as it always does during the Christmas season several times but back to the story of Christmas and how it came to be here in America we ended our last segment hearing about how a New York intellectual named Clement Clark Moore wrote the night before Christmas a poem that would forever enshrine the characteristics of Santa Claus. Let's pick it up from there. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. 
Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed, in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. Both old world legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter. And Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, long red tongue, covered with fur, tail, and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky, led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Danda and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took more Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about you know, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. 
And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image of Santa became indelible. And with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. The list of naughty and nice, living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, Copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. And they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end, they decide he needs something with a little more punch. So it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never and this is Our American Stories. And by the way, that's why you listen to your wife. Gene Autry listened to his wife. Smart man. And by the way, imagine 
Rollo the red-nosed reindeer. What a mistake. When we come back, chock full of information. That's what you are here on this show. Answers to your questions. I know I'm learning a lot. Thanks, Hangler, for putting this together. Greg, as always, does a great job on these pieces. One last segment about all the things you didn't know about Christmas and how Christmas, as we know it and celebrate it, came to be. This is Our American Stories. stories are our special broadcast on how Christmas came to be in this country and I've learned a lot and I know you have too and now it's time to close out the hour the final chapter in this story another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia Irving Berlin and sung by Bing Crosby This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the one So the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war. But it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this this is George. I I thought sure you'd remember me. 
The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962, came a flurry of animated specials. But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson advertising agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now, but, you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, well, if we don't do it, who will? what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. He Bill staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking at me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, all right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? A football. I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap. And this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I laid there for a minute, and I knew that I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones. And we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches American somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, if something happens to you, you enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it. From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories. And again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man, and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly 
is the most American thing about America. That I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas. We talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer, in particular, was the International Admissions Director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions, and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. 
Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes, but they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently. And it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do. And thank goodness. I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup. And next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter. The older woman evidently had some form of dementia, and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters. After some explaining and finally understanding, the elderly woman proclaimed, You mean I'm a great-grandmother? That's wonderful! 
Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. stories we're about to tell the story about the film it's a wonderful life what is it about that movie that makes it so alluring on the most basic level it reminds us all that every person matters that we can depend on the strength of family and friends and that god hears our desperate cries here's greg hangler with the story of this christmas classic it's a wonderful life In the closing scene of It's a Wonderful Life, newly commissioned first-class guardian angel Clarence Oddbody reminds George Bailey, no man is a failure who has friends. For countless families, including my own, George Bailey and the cast of It's a Wonderful Life have long been treasured holiday friends, reminding us of the power of friendship and the potential impact and worth of a single human life. It's a Wonderful Life is an illustration of the values and virtues we see illustrated in the Christmas story. Self-sacrifice, provision, faith, generosity, mercy, grace, joy, divine intervention, the meaning of life, and forgiveness. Like the joy of carefully opening a skillfully wrapped Christmas present, we are about to remove the wrapper from this film, discovering some of the precious anecdotes in virtually every scene. It's Christmas Eve. A desperate man certain that his entire life has been worth nothing stands on the brink of suicide. But God has better things in store for George Bailey. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope, right? Surprisingly, It's a Wonderful Life began as a Christmas card. In 1943, writer Philip Van Doren Stern wrote a short story he called The Greatest Gift. When Stern couldn't sell his story, he had 200 copies printed and enclosed them in his Christmas cards. Three months later, RKO Radio Studios bought The Greatest Gift for $10,000 intending to make a Christmas movie with Cary Grant. Three different scripts were commissioned for The Greatest Gift by noted writers Mark Connolly, Dalton Trumbo, 
and Clifford Odets, but none of them made the grade. So the greatest gift gathered dust on the shelf at RKO. That is until director Frank Capra discovered it. Capra read The Greatest Gift and saw its potential immediately. RKO, anxious to unload the troublesome project, sold The Greatest Gift to Capra for the same $10,000 they'd paid for it and threw in all three scripts for free. Frank Russell Capra was one of the most successful directors of the 1930s with classics, such as It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. During World War II, Capra served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps and produced propaganda films such as the Why We Fight series. Born in Italy and raised in Los Angeles from the age of five, his rags-to-riches story has led film historians such as Ian Freer to consider him the American dream personified. Capra was very popular with audiences, but critics often mocked his optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting films calling them Capricorn, qualities that were rare even in the heydays of the 1930s and 40s. Capra didn't mind, though. He thought that making positive statements through his movies was very important. It's a Wonderful Life is a sentimental film, but it's also an honest one. It explores the pain of normal life as well as the joy. Here's Frank Capra. That's a great film. I love that film. It's my favorite film. And in a sense, it epitomizes everything I've been trying to do and trying to say in the other films, only it does it very dramatically with a, with a very unique story. The importance of the individual is the theme that, I'm, that it, it, it tells, and uh, that no man is a failure, and every man has a, something to do with his life. If he's born, he's born to do something. I suppose it would been better if I'd never been born at all. What did you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Wait a minute, that's an idea. What do you think? And this idea is carried out in this unique plot because a man who thought he was a failure and thought he'd be, everybody around him would have been better off had he not been born was given the chance to see how the world around him would have been, his own small little world would have been had he not been born. Your brother Harry Bailey broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Although many of the film's roles would prove difficult to cast, Capra had only one George Bailey in mind, Jimmy Stewart, who had already starred in Capra's You Can't Take It With You in 1938 and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Stewart, who became the first movie star to wear a military uniform, had just returned from the Second World War as a combat bomber pilot and was one of the few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in only four years. Like most returning GIs, Stewart wondered what would happen next. My contract with MGM ran out during the war, and I just got a phone call one day. It was Frank Capra, and he said, I have an idea for a story. Why don't you come down, and, and I'll, uh, I'll tell, tell it to you. Well, I couldn't get down there quick enough, and I sat down, 
And he said, you're a fellow in a small town. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Yeah, then you get married, you have all these kids. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. And your father dies and you have to take over the building Four, alone. Three, two, one, bingo! <laughs> We're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. And uh, finally, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to jump off a bridge. And an angel by the name of Clarence, he comes down to help you, but uh, he can't swim. Help! Well, you go down and uh, save the... He said, this, this really doesn't sound very good, does it? I said, Frank, if you, want, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down and Clarence, and he can't swim, and I saved. I, I, when do we start? As a screen actor, they don't come much more likable than Jimmy Stewart. His characters on screen are honest, direct, and friendly. But Frank Capra saw a darker personality beneath Stewart's all-American charm. He knew that Stewart could not only own the lighter moments in the film but that he could also be convincing as a man sinking into bitterness and despair. Here's Hollywood legend Carol Burnett. I think it's uh, one of the finest pieces of work of acting anyone has ever done on the screen. That moment at that bar, uh, it's indelible in my mind. He realizes that he has lost everything. The money is missing. It's Christmas Eve. And he sits there and starts to cry. He is so in tune with that character and with that writing that uh, he and George Bailey are one. Capra's genius in casting can be seen in how he populated Bedford Falls with the finest bunch of character actors in Hollywood. The role of George's Uncle Billy was considered for W.C. Fields but was given to the first man to win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award, Thomas Mitchell. Oh, maybe I better go home. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, oh thank you, George. This is mine, the metal one. Oh. For the evil Mr. Potter, Capper considered the master of chills, Vincent Price, but was inevitably played to nasty perfection by Lionel Barrymore. Drew Barrymore's great uncle. George, I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. For George Bailey's wife, Mary, Capra's instincts were accurate once again when he cast the relatively unknown MGM contract player, Donna Reed, the perfect mixture of wholesome sex appeal and homegrown American strength and virtue. What'd you wish, George? And what storytelling this is. When we come back, I know you're going to want to hear the rest of this story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life from some of the original people on the scene when it was made here on Our American Story.
And we return to the story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life. And when we last left off, director Frank Capra was casting a young farm girl from Iowa named Donna Reed. What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Here's an interesting bit of trivia. Frank Capra had hired someone to toss a rock at the window for Donna Reed in the old house scene. But as it turned out, she was a terrific baseball pitcher. Reed surprised Capra and the production crew with the power and accuracy of her toss, throwing the rock better than anyone else on the set. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Well, you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Donna Reed's sweetness and beauty make it obvious to us, if not to George, that staying in Bedford Falls is not a punishment, but a pleasure. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. If George was to have a wonderful life, to a great extent, it was his wife who made it so. Remember the night we broke through windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. These days, movies can say and show almost anything imaginable. But in 1946, the Motion Picture Association of America's production code eliminated the words impotent, dang, lousy, and jerk from Capra's script. In one case, Capra managed to sidestep the production code that stipulated that criminals had to be punished for their crimes. But when Mr. Potter steals Uncle Billy's misplaced building and loan $8,000 deposit, he never receives his penalty. Capra said that he received more mail about this point over the years than about anything else in the film. All right, George, go ahead. Go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. <laughs> The little town of Bedford Falls was in fact a set built on the RKO Ranch in Encino, California. A city that never sees snow, not even in the coldest days of winter, let alone during the record-breaking heatwave summer of filming in 1946. At the time, movie snow was usually made of cornflakes painted white. But the large crunch made it impossible to record dialogue the special effects crew invented a new type of artificial snow using a wind machine and a special mixture of 6,000 gallons of fomite, sugar, soap, and water. One of the funniest scenes in the movie takes place at a high school gymnasium when a Charleston contest is suddenly interrupted when the floor of the gym slides open, revealing a swimming pool beneath it. I've got the key. Many critics jeered at this scene, calling it movie fakery at its worst. But it's real. And what is called the swim gym is in daily use to this very day at Beverly Hills High School. And if the jealous prankster who opens the gym floor over George Bailey looks familiar, it's because it's none other than Carl Schweitzer, otherwise known as Alfalfa from Our Gang or the Little Rascals. Frank Capra loved to take advantage of surprises on the set. During the scene where Uncle Billy has too much to drink and says goodbye to George, a technician off-screen accidentally knocked over a stack of props. 
It sounded like Uncle Billy had fallen into a whole stack of garbage cans. The production guy expected to be fired, but Capra gave him a $10 bonus for improving sound and characterization. Thank you, George. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Now, look. If you point me in the right direction, would you do that, George? Oh, old, old Bill in the lone pal, huh? Now, you just turn this way. I'm not right straight down there. Well, that way. My wild is true. I'm all right. I'm all right. In another sequence... Capra faced an unexpected snag when Jimmy Stewart became extremely reluctant to kiss Donna Reed in the now famous telephone scene. He kept asking Capra to delay the scene, arguing that he had been away from the cameras too long for such a hot and heavy scene. A fella gets rusty, he said. Capra insisted they shoot the scene. And just to make sure Stewart didn't back out, he restaged it so that Jimmy Stewart and Reed had to share the phone. The scene was shot in one take and is arguably the greatest kiss in movie-making history. George, George, George. Here they come! Here they come! Everyone has a favorite part in It's a Wonderful Life, including Jimmy Stewart himself. Here he is on a walk and talk with Johnny Carson. Of all the great scenes in that picture, what was your favorite? Well, I think it was the scene with the angel Clarence yeah. when we were in that uh, little house, but when we'd just been in the water. For the bridge tender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Clarence told me that he was an angel that uh, hadn't won his wings yet. I, I loved that. Hey, what's, what's with you? What did what, what, you say just a minute ago? Why'd you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, think, just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wing. This is one of the wonderful things about the picture, I think. The scene at the end of the picture, uh, this is after that's, it's a different place. Nobody knows me and everything. Right? But I just, uh, I stop for a minute and I say, God, I'm not a praying man, but please bring me back. Please bring me back. I, I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. The film premiered in New York's Globe Theater on West 46th Street on December 20th, 1946, and failed to crack the top 25 grossing films for 1947. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, but didn't win a single gold statue. Within a few months, It's a Wonderful Life was out of sight and out of mind, where it would inevitably retire into obscurity. But future audiences would rediscover the film thanks to a legal loophole. In the early 1970s, copyright on the film expired and the movie company failed to renew it. Therefore, 
the film entered into the public domain. Television networks could play It's a Wonderful Life as often as they wanted without paying any royalties. Word of mouth began to spread, and more and more people began to fall in love with the picture. Bert, do you know me? It came from just little bits of thinking. Just, just remember, no man is born to be a failure. Just remember, no man is poor who has friends. It shows values that are really very close to an awful lot of us and are really very basic American values. Like George Bailey, we might wonder what the world might have been like without It's a Wonderful Life. But like George Bailey, the film was rescued from oblivion by its friends, making It's a Wonderful Life one of the greatest films of all time. Fellow Americans who love all the optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting ingredients in Capricorn. It is a wonderful life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always. And go to Our American Network to hear all of our art stories and all of our movie stories. Frank Capra's story, It's a Wonderful Life story, here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and it's Christmas time, and so we're gonna playing. We're gonna be playing a lot of Christmas music. And by the way, the guitar playing you hear on a lot of our ins and outs is by a guy named Tommy Emmanuel, and Jesse loves him, and we've come to love him. And there's nothing he can't play, no kind of music he can't play. And from what I understand, seeing him play live is something, and he sells out everywhere he goes. Tommy Emanuel, just a great musician. And no words, no singing, just one guy and one guitar. Old school. And you're listening to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and we love telling you the stories of songs, and this is quite a story. And by the way, for a really great story, go to our Bing and Bowie story on how the little drummer boy got made. Oh my goodness. It's just terrific. Well... Nearly all of us have heard the song, but where did it come from? The song did not start out as a song at all. It was a children's book written by a Jewish man named Robert L. May. He was an ad man for the Montgomery Ward department store in Chicago. In 1939, the May family was in a rough spot. They were hit hard by the Great Depression, and Bob's wife Evelyn was diagnosed with breast cancer two years earlier. Though luck had not been kind, Bob did not lose heart and channeled his hope into a special project, a story about an outcast reindeer. When Bob was done, he showed it to his boss. And, of course, his boss hated it. By the way, we learned that about Charlie Brown's Christmas. Nobody at CBS liked the thing. 
That's actually proof that it's probably going to be a hit, by the way. When the suits don't like it and the executives don't like it, that means the American public probably will. At the time, a red nose was associated with lots of drinking. Not exactly the kind of image Ward was looking to project. But Bob wouldn't take no for an answer. He persuaded a company artist to go with him to the zoo to sketch reindeer. Cute little reindeer that weren't at all suggestive of a long week at a bar. Those sketches made all the difference. The project moved forward. In July of 1939, Bob's wife, Evelyn, died. Bob's boss suggested that he take time off and give the book responsibility to someone else. Bob refused. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was his story. Bob said, quote, I needed Rudolph now more than ever. Gratefully, I buried myself in the work. Finally, in late August, it was done. Why a reindeer? It was his four-year-old Barbara's favorite animal. He always made sure to read to his daughter Barbara, developing parts of the story in order to get her input. Smart man. Barbara loved the story, and so did everyone else. Montgomery Ward gave away 2.4 million copies that Christmas, and their next reprint was for 3.6 million. It was a huge hit, and really could have brought in the big bucks for Montgomery Ward, but in 1946, they signed off all rights to Bob and his family. As we'll hear later, this made all the difference. Ten years after the book, Bob's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, turned the Rudolph story into a song. A song that nobody wanted to record. Fortunately, Gene Autry's wife loved the song. So Gene, knowing what was good for him, agreed to record it. He tucked it away on the B-side of a record and didn't think much else of it. Until, of course, it became a number one hit. In fact, it became Autry's biggest-selling record ever. The song eventually sold 12.5 million copies, bested only by White Christmas. So, fellas, when your wife tells you to do something, just do it. So let's hear a little bit of Gene Autry's version now. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen But do you recall The most famous reindeer of all Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it You would even say it and we're going to come back to more of that Autry recording, but we wanted to move forward with the story. Now, for some of us, our most familiar memories of Rudolph are from the 1964 Christmas special, which was made 25 years after the original poem. Here's the scene where Rudolph is born. We can even hear the sound his red nose makes. Well, now, let me tell you about Rudolph. It all started a couple of years before the big snow. It was springtime, and Santa's lead reindeer, Donner, had just become a proud papa. Nah, we'll, we'll call him Rudolph. 
Rudolph is a lovely name. Rudolph. Hey, he knows his name already. Papa. Mama. He's, he's got a shiny nose. It's a, it's a shiny? I'd even say it glow. Well, we'll simply have to overlook it. Now, how can you overlook that? His beak blinks like a blinking beacon. <laughs> well, Donner, where's the new member of the family? After all, if he's going to be on my team someday, he'd better get to know me. <laughs> well, hi there. Aren't you the sturdy little fellow? <laughs> Santa. <laughs> and smart, too. Great bouncing iceberg. Now, I'm sure it'll stop as soon as he grows up, Santa. Well, let's hope so if he wants to make the sleigh team someday. And by the way, an excerpt from the original poem reads thus. "'Twas the day before Christmas and all through the hills, the reindeer were playing, enjoying the spills of skating and coasting and climbing the willows and hopscotch and leapfrog, protected by pillows." While every so often they'd stop to call names At one little deer not allowed in their games Aha! Look at Rudolph, his nose is a sight It's red as a beet, twice as big, twice as bright While Rudolph just wept, what else could he do? He knew that the things they were saying were true It's really just spectacular, and I'm, I'm not Burl Ives And Burl Ives, my goodness what a, what a voice, what an actor, what a part. But back to the, the great and epic show. So poor Rudolph ran away and his mom and dad went out to find him. So they make it back and when everybody hears their story, they start to realize maybe they were a little hard on the misfits. Maybe misfits have a place too. Even Santa realizes that maybe he was wrong. Rudolph, I promise. As soon as this storm lets up, I'll find homes for all those misfit toys. Latest weather report, sir. Well, this is it. The storm won't subside by tonight. We, we'll have to cancel Christmas. Papa, are you sure? Everything's grounded. Oh, oh the poor kids. They've been so good this year, too. But I couldn't chance it. I'll have to tell everybody that it's all off this year. I've got some bad news, folks. Christmas is going to be canceled. There's nothing I can do. This weather... Yeah. Rudolph, Rudolph, please. Could you tone it down a bit? I mean, that nose of yours. I, that nose. That beautiful, wonderful nose. Huh? Rudolph, Christmas is not off, and you're going to lead my team. From what I see now, that'll cut through the murkiest storm they can dish up. What I'm trying to say is, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It will be an honor, sir. As we know, Bob May was down on his luck while writing, Rudolph. Many poems and songs born out of tragedy are sullen and weighty, but not this one. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer 
his children's story turned into a song that was filled with hope, hope for those who feel downcast and useless. Now let's listen to Bob May's youngest daughters, Martha May and Betsy Decker, recount the story of Rudolph and what that little reindeer has meant to them. My father was a wonderful, creative, incredible person um, who gave the world something that will never be taken away. All of the other reindeer. He never, ever would have imagined that, that it would be what it is today. My house is full of reindeer. I have every ornament. We feel very fortunate. There are a lot of things we couldn't do, wouldn't have college educations, for one, uh, if it weren't for, for Rudolph. And there you have it. The memory lives on. And that's the thing about art and stories. You can just pass them along. And Gene Autry's a smart man. Again, he listened to his wife, put this on the B-side, and it became his biggest hit. The story of a song, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Let's leave where we started with Gene Autry's version. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, a beloved Christmas song. red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, You would even say it glows All of the other reindeer Used to laugh and call him names They never let poor Rudolph Join in any reindeer games Then one foggy Christmas Eve Santa came to say